Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Hi friends, before we jump into today's episode, I want to thank you for choosing to listen to the surprising rebirth of Belief in God. We'll soon be celebrating 500,000 downloads since launch and winning a Zenga prize for podcast journalism. If you're enjoying the series and you'd like to help me reach even more people with thinking faith, can I encourage you to support this podcast? Becoming a silver supporter means you get early access to episodes and bonus content. Gold supporters also get signed books and a monthly catch up with me on Zoom if you'd like it. The links to support are with the show notes or visit justinbriley.com. Enjoy today's episode. Please be aware that today's episode contains sexual references and descriptions that may not be suitable for all listeners. Welcome to ABC News Live. We have breaking news for you. Harvey Weinstein is heading to prison. Judge James Burke in New York City just delivered the sentence 23 years. He didn't know it, but this walk into court this morning became Harvey Weinstein's last steps of freedom for a long time. Is this your last day as minister, man? Once almighty in Hollywood, now frail. His glittering career now eclipsed by the truth that he raped and abused women. Every single place he ever stayed, there were people there set up to help him rape. This is how it went. This is what it was. He is a sociopathic predator. He thinks he's done nothing wrong. I wish just one person would have stood up and said no more. Now more than 65 women have come forward. How did this producer manage to rack up 40 years of allegations without anybody finally stopping it? He was like rich and powerful and like, who could I even talk to? Like, what could I do? He could just sort of squash me. He held all the cards. Everybody came to him. So to be in the enclave of somebody that powerful, you know, was very exciting. A dramatic fall for a Hollywood giant, a victory for all those fighting the abuse of women at the hands of powerful men. When, in late 2017, a scandal emerged surrounding the treatment of women by the highly successful and highly powerful film producer Harvey Weinstein, it opened the floodgates to a wider interrogation of the structures of power in society that have led to historic sexual harassment and violence across industries, the arts and academia. Hundreds of powerful men were named and shamed following the emergence of a viral trend. The MeToo hashtag is taking over social media. It's an effort to shine a light on sexual assault and harassment. Yeah, so on Sunday, actress Alyssa Milano tweeted, if you've been sexually harassed or assaulted, write me too. While I was shooting Insatiable, there was a, a week where the news hit about Harvey Weinstein and it was devastating to everyone. Um, but what happened was that was very interesting is, is everyone on the set, all the women on the set started talking about um, their own stories. Um, 
And there wasn't one woman that didn't have a story. It was so prevalent. And October 15th, I was in bed with, with my daughter and I sent out the tweet. Um, seven hours later, there were 35,000 replies. Within 24 hours, it was tweeted uh, uh, 12 million times. According to a New York Times analysis in 2018, the Me Too movement brought down 201 powerful men. This was about showing that this happens everywhere, that it's not just Hollywood, that it's not just actresses, that it's women on Wall Street, it's women in a hospital, it's caretakers, it's, it's women walking down the street. Ever since the sexual revolution of the 1960s, sex has become unmoored from monogamous marriage as contraception and changing social attitudes ushered in an era of free love and experimentation. In a culture that had often turned a blind eye to male sexual indiscretions while condemning so-called loose women, the sexual revolution struck many as a movement that fostered equality between the sexes. But equality on whose terms? It turned out that there were still winners and losers in the sexual revolution. Me Too was a movement that fought back for the rights of women not to have their sexual autonomy trumped by powerful men. It put the principle of consent center stage and critiqued the power imbalances that endanger it. To that extent, it could be argued that Me Too, as far as it called for men to exercise self-restraint and reasserted the dignity of women's choices and autonomy, harked back to a much earlier sexual revolution. This is female rights advocate Louise Perry. I mean, when people refer, accuse me sometimes of being old-fashioned, I say, excuse me, how old-fashioned do you mean? Because, you know, in antiquity, as exactly as you say, there is, there is the, no one would question the right of Harvey Weinstein, for instance, to have sexual access to his, his employees and his, indeed his slaves in that era. It was about you know, abusing that position of power to sexual ends, which, yes, in many other eras would not be considered illegitimate in the least. You know, we, I think it is true that we consider that, even in a post-Christian era, we consider that to be illegitimate because we are coming out of that long history of understanding you know, egalitarianism to be such a fundamental virtue. And that actually Me Too, in a sense, it, at its core has this very old Christian idea of exactly this male restraint. Louise Perry, author of The Case Against the Sexual Revolution, is a public thinker who in recent years has come to realise just how much the sexual revolution of the 20th century stands in the shadow of the original sexual revolution of the first century. Today, as we continue to explore the way our culture has been shaped by the Christian story, we'll discover why Perry and other thinkers alongside her are beginning to ask just how much we may lose in the absence of the Christian story and whether it's time to take a fresh look at the movement that inspired the first sexual revolution. 
I'm Justin Briley, and throughout my working life, I've been hosting conversations on faith between atheists, agnostics, and believers. In this documentary series, I'm telling the story of why new atheism grew old and secular thinkers are considering Christianity again. I'm speaking to those inside and outside the atheist movement and the many new thinkers, beginning a new conversation on the value of faith. Along the way, we'll meet some of those who have found themselves surprised by God as they've made the journey from atheism to Christianity. Welcome to The Surprising Rebirth of Belief in God, Episode 11, The Sexual Revolution, Why Louise Perry Changed Her Mind. Just before we jump into the rest of today's show, one of the voices you'll hear on this podcast is friend of the show, Glenn Scrivener, a brilliant Christian communicator. Glenn has recently put together an online course called 321. It's an introduction to Christianity that's imaginative, stimulating and assumes no prior knowledge. If you've been thinking about exploring faith for yourself or if you want something to share with your friends, 321 is just the thing. Glenn presents eight video-led sessions which are beautifully shot and animated. I found it a really engaging and practical way of connecting the big ideas in this podcast to our everyday life. I'm already thinking of people I can share it with. See for yourself at 321course.com slash JB. It's completely free. Just start a free account with your email and a password and you're in. There's no spam, no hidden costs. Go to 321course.com slash JB and discover life according to Jesus. I believe the present Declaration of Human Rights is a document of the first order of importance. While history alone can determine the historic significance of an event, it is safe to say that the Declaration before us may be destined to occupy an honorable place in the procession of positive landmarks in human history. To understand why we think about sex the way we do today, we need to first think about human rights in general. The Universal Declaration of Human Rights, drafted in 1948 and forged in the aftermath of two world wars, has long been seen as a landmark statement of human rights, enshrining in its very first article that all human beings are born free and equal in dignity and rights. Eleanor Roosevelt played a significant part in bringing together the world leaders who agreed upon its famous charter. Man's desire for peace lies behind this declaration. The realization that the flagrant violation of human rights by Nazi and fascist countries sowed the seeds of the last world war has supplied the impetus for the work which brings us to the moment of achievement here today. We have much to do to fully achieve and to assure the rights set forth in this declaration. But having them put before us with the moral backing of 58 nations will be a great step forward. 
In addition to affirming rights around freedom, education, employment, law, health and habitation, the Universal Declaration of Human Rights also included articles on the rights of people to be free from sexual abuse and for marriage to only be entered into by consenting adults. But where had this remarkable set of rights actually come from? When I sat down for a big conversation from Premier Unbelievable with Harvard academic and atheist Steven Pinker, in conversation with Christian thinker Nick Spencer, Pinker was adamant that a commitment to humanism is all that's needed to guarantee human rights. Well, I think they're, they're stable enough to result, for example, in the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, which has uh, not a shred of Christianity in it. Oh, well, no, let, me, they, let me push back on that. The Universal Declaration was drafted by Charles Malik, who was a Lebanese Christian. And it's very telling that the word person appears in the UN Declaration six times. That person is rooted in the personalism which was which was mainstreamed by Catholic social teaching in the 30s and 40s. So the UNHCR, absolutely right, as Maritain said, and as you rightly quote, it deliberately doesn't draw on any um, metaphysical foundations because we want people to agree. But you can see the fingerprints of personalism in the drafting. Again, you know, historically, you can see fingerprints of, of many things. And Maritain uh, convened a council of uh, multi-confessional intellectuals and moralists, Hindus and uh, Confucians and, and Muslims, uh, and, and indeed was pleasantly surprised that there was so much agreement. Uh, it, uh, you know, I, I think there's a perfectly robust justification for humanism. Not, you see, atheism is not uh, uh, itself a belief system. It's, it's the absence of one particular belief, namely in supernatural entities. But aside from that, there isn't any such belief as atheism. Uh, but humanism is uh, grounded in our universal humanity. The fact we're made of the same stuff. We're the same species. We all are sentient. We all have the capacity to uh, experience pleasure and pain. We all have the capacity to, to uh, reason. And that is a pretty rock-solid foundation for universal human rights and universal human dignity. Nick Spencer is the author of books including The Evolution of the West, How Christianity Has Shaped Our Values, and in contrast to Pinker, believes that the West's commitment to human rights and indeed humanism has deeply Christian roots. Only moments earlier, he had argued why. I would argue, and I know this is obviously where Stephen and I would, would part company, that there is a secure basis for uh, humanism within Christian thought than there is within atheist thought. So, for example, I would, I would, I would say that a commitment of humanism is um, ineradicable human dignity and fundamental human equality. Mm. Now, you can understand that, and you can trace, you can historically trace that through the through 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 European thought, certainly, and you can, as it were, justify it on on theological grounds if you if you, if you do that kind of thing. I don't doubt that many, many of my atheist friends are committed to uh, human dignity or human equality. I can't see, as it were, where the deep foundations for that are. I don't think reason in and of itself, let alone science, acts as a sufficiently robust foundation for that commitment. So it's not that I want to say that humanists, atheist humanists, are not committed to human dignity mm. and equality at all. It's just that I don't think their foundations are quite stable enough. Like Spencer, I find it hard to justify the idea that such lofty concepts as the inherent freedom, equality and dignity of all humans can be grounded in abstract scientific facts or our capacity for reason. 
What exactly is it about being born with the genetic identity of Homo sapiens that suddenly confers the United Declaration of Human Rights' long list of inalienable rights and freedoms upon an individual? Science itself has nothing to say on the matter. And when it comes to atrocities such as the Nazis' eugenics programs, science has frequently been employed to the detriment of these rights. An even older and more famous document, the United States Declaration of Independence, drafted in 1776, was a precursor to the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their Creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. As John F. Kennedy's reading of it reminds us, the framers of the Declaration were happy to employ religious language about being endowed with rights by a creator. But did you catch the part about these truths being self-evident? It seems to me that the nature of human equality and rights only seems self-evident to those who have inherited the same Christian assumptions that the Founding Fathers brought with them to the United States. So when, when Jefferson blithely says in the Declaration of Independence, you know, we hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal. Well, I mean, in the, in the classical world, Plato, Aristotle, Cicero, if you said, oh, it's self-evident that all people are equal. What? I mean, it was the opposite of self-evident to them. This is Bishop Robert Barron speaking in a public conversation I hosted between him and historian Tom Holland. Yeah, Plato's whole political philosophy is predicated upon the assumption that we're not equal. And that the more we recognize that, the, the more just a society we have. Aristotle thought that only a handful of people should get involved in politics. Most are incapable of it. The equality. So what happened? That's the interesting question. What happened to go from that to Jefferson, late 18th century, saying it's self-evident? Well, of course, the giveaway is that little word that all men are created equal. What intervened was the Christian sense of, of creation. And then... Furthermore, from Jefferson, they're endowed by their creator with certain inalienable rights. Well, nobody in the ancient world believed in inalienable rights for everybody. You know, a handful of privileged people or they were the gift of, of the state or something. But that everybody's got inalienable rights. Well, again, the giveaway, they're endowed by their creator with these. I mean, so there is the intervention of Christianity into the conversation. So things become self-evident to us because... They've been hardwired through the Christian influence. We should claim that. And that's why I very much admire Tom Holland's work, because we should claim that as Christians confidently and boldly and stop coming hat in hand to the culture, begging to be taken seriously. I think it should work the other way, you know. While many secular thinkers like Pinker and, as we heard last week, A.C. Grayling, seem anxious to avoid any religious basis for their belief in human rights and humanism, there are an increasing number of secular thinkers who seem happy to grasp the nettle and admit where such moral beliefs originate, including best-selling atheist author and historian Yuval Noah Harari, speaking here in a widely viewed TED Talk. Most legal systems today in the world are based on a belief in human rights. But what are human rights? 
Human rights, just like God and heaven, are just a story that we have invented. They are not an objective reality. They are not some biological fact about Homo sapiens. Take a human being, cut him open, look inside, you will find the heart, the kidneys, neurons, hormones, DNA, but you won't find any rights. The only place you find rights is in the stories that we have invented and spread around over the last few centuries. They may be very positive stories, very good stories, but they are still just fictional stories that we have invented. Unlike some other secular thinkers who recognize the Judeo-Christian origins of our belief in human rights, in his book Sapiens, Harari seems to harbor no desire for the myth to perhaps be a reality, but simply concedes that human rights are a fiction and may one day cease to exist. In his follow-up book, Homo Deus, he explores a dystopian prediction of a transhumanist future in which outdated thinking about human rights will inevitably be replaced by a new social and moral order as science, technology and AI allows humans to escape their physical, mortal and maybe even moral limitations. This is Glenn Scrivener, author of The Air We Breathe, reflecting on Harari's approach. This TED talk, he, he says, human rights are not found as a biological reality. They are just found in the stories that we have told. Those stories might be great stories, um, but they are just stories that involve the gods. And, it, and he's very clear, certainly in Sapiens, that it, it, it's from the Christian, from the Bible, that we get this this sense of humanity made in God's image. And that's where we got the idea of, of human rights. And when we get rid of the God story, we're going to get rid of the, 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 the human rights story as well. And at that stage, what people then want to do is they, they want to say, oh no, we can grant ourselves rights. We can grant ourselves dignity, can't we? At which point you want to ask, who's we? And the very dystopian answer to that is like whoever has the technological will and power to do it, they have the right to confer on whatever subset of, of um, biological reality and, and they can grant themselves those, those rights and the rest of us can take the highmost. So on what, on what grounds can we say that humanity as such has value? It seems to me that Glenn Scrivener is on to something really important here. Harari's sobering vision of the impermanence of human rights seems far more likely to me to be the trajectory that our culture is heading than Pinker's sunny optimism that we'll all eternally recognise the inalienable rights of our neighbour because we all share the same DNA. That's not been the history of the world so far, and it may not be in the future. So for those of us who really think those funny old human rights are worth holding on to, how on earth do we ground them in anything substantial? Back to Glenn. I honestly can't come up with a better answer than God the human, who takes humanity to himself and through the cross and resurrection raises it up and, and puts humanity at the, at the top of the, the hierarchy and puts humanity as such, human nature as such, because he takes our nature. And therefore, you, you can't sort of d divide up human nature into, you know, the Homo Deus and Homo sapiens and, and 
and, and have those concentric circles of meaning if you have humanity as such taken up by by somebody who is beyond the human and therefore if, if, it, if human rights are in the hands of anyone that is human themselves then they have the right to narrow the circle um, only if you've got God the human actually do I think you have the 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 philosophical grounding for any kind of humanism whatsoever and so even as a Christian I'm I'm absolutely a humanist and and I think a massive argument moving forwards with all sorts of dystopian futures open to us is like what is the human and is there is there a future for the human and some Christians might hear me say that and say oh Glenn's leaving aside his Christianity I'm saying no I'm, I'm actually pointing to the the one the one hope we've got for a humanism that is actually that actually honors all those to the very fringes of, of human society and at that point I, I start to sound quite a quite like a fundamentalist because I'm saying it's a kind of Christ or the pit it's like you go you go with this Jesus thing or you go to some very to, to my way of thinking some some very hellish alternatives it sounds quite fundamentalist but I but I do think philosophically that that's where we're at it's it's Christ or the pit As the Christian story has faded from public view in our increasingly post-Christian West, I've increasingly seen a variety of secular responses to the question of what we do in the absence of that story to undergird our belief in human value. Some, like Pinker, seem to doggedly cling to the idea that we can ground human rights in science. Others, like Harari, seem to be dispassionate about whether human rights even exist. Others seem to be reverting to a neo-pagan mentality that might really is right, and that the quicker we usher in the transhumanist future, the sooner we can transcend the old order. But a significant number, as we've heard throughout this documentary series, are asking whether we should take a second look at the Christian story that birthed these beliefs. We've already met Douglas Murray, Tom Holland, Ian Hersey Alley, and a variety of other increasingly Christ-haunted thinkers. Here's perhaps the best known of them, Jordan Peterson, going straight to the first page of Genesis for the basis of human dignity and value. The religious proposition is human beings are made in the image of God. And if, if you just took that apart philosophically, and tried to understand what it meant, it would mean that, well, there is some ultimate source of what constitutes value, and that's at least in part what God is, the ultimate value, and that human beings are to be regarded as reflections of that ultimate value. And that's the proposition that we have intrinsic worth, regardless of our status, right? And it's a miraculous proposition. It flies in the face of What's obvious? Because what's more obvious is if I'm stronger than you, I can push you over. And if I'm smarter than you, why shouldn't I have everything? And why doesn't might make right? And if you're weak, you're useless. And if you're powerful, well, it's not like you're worthwhile exactly. It's just that there's no reason for you not to have everything. That's a way different set of propositions than the idea that, you know, even the least among us are made in the image of God. What about our belief in compassion and looking after the downtrodden? 
Here's historian Tom Holland speaking on where that instinct came from. If, if people want to understand why there is the current debate about how we should treat refugees or how we should treat those who, who are, are less fortunate than us, the, good Samar the parable of the Good Samaritan has done more to hardwire that into the collective consciousness of the West, I think, than any number of kind of statements of principle from political parties or philosophers or whatever. It's that story at the most basic level. And that reflects the fact that the Jesus of the Gospels is the greatest short storyteller of all time. His stories have had a greater impact on the way that the world thinks than any other storyteller. Historian Sarah Irving Stonebreaker, whose own story of coming to faith involved her recognition that human rights can't be grounded in an atheist worldview, says that coming to recognize the God-given value of every human life makes a big difference to how she now does history. In history, you know, again and again, you, you encounter the lives of people, you know, if you encounter, for example, when I teach the British Empire or the, yeah, any kind of modern empire, um, or ancient empire, you encounter, for example, the lives of slaves, you encounter the lives of women, um, you encounter the lives of those whose lives, the Bible says, are infinitely precious. Um, the lives of those who are otherwise, however, um, discarded and ignored, the least of these in many ways. And I think for me that becoming a Christian and the, obviously, you know, the more that I, over the years, read and understood of the Bible and of theology and of God's incredible, not only sort of value for human life, but the way in which God uses um, the least of these, that has enabled me to bring to my own studies of history and indeed to my own teaching of history a kind of sense in which not only is there kind of purpose to this story, but of the sense in which the most vulnerable and the marginalised are actually an incredibly important part of God's story. So what was it about the Christian movement that led to this complete shaping of how we view human dignity, human rights and compassion for the vulnerable? I sat down with New Testament historian Nijay Gupta, author of the new book, Strange Religion, how the first Christians were weird, dangerous and compelling to find out how a completely new way of viewing slaves and women in particular came about. You know, I, I think one of the one of the enduring gifts of early Judaism and early Christianity is uh, the inherent dignity and sanctity of the individual person. Right? Um, you you have to talk about worldview. You have to talk about cosmology and theology. Whether you're an atheist, whether you're a Hindu, a Buddhist. And you have to talk about how do they view the person? And, um, you know, Christians, Justin, have done atrocious things throughout history. Not all of them, not everywhere, but they have. And and so there can be bad theology for Christians if they're off track. But if if they're following the Bible, if they're following Jesus, um, you know, the, the, they, they recognize that Jesus himself spoke kindly and winsomely to the least of these. He advocated for the least of these as individuals who have dignity and deserve respect, right? Aristotle had this view 
that was really popular in the Greek and Roman world that uh, they would talk about it as genius, which just means, uh, or the genius spirit, which means intelligence, that men have perfect intelligence. Women have half intelligence, essentially. Male children have underdeveloped intelligence and slaves have no intelligence. And, and Christians never use those categories. When they say slaves be good slaves or women be submissive, they never really explain why, except that this is for the good of order and civility. They, they don't actually say women are inferior. They don't say women are less intelligent. Women are going to screw it up. They don't say any of those things. Um, they basically say, let's maintain good order. But then in practice in ministry, they're, they're defying those categories because of this spirit-filled revolution where anyone who has the spirit in them is equally capable of doing good and great in the world and deserves human dignity. Christianity engaged in what I call a religious technology innovation, uh, where they basically said, you can connect with God intimately and directly from anywhere. Um, let's talk about sort of some of the specifics of the way the early Christians worshipped. Um, it was essentially, as you say, they didn't have a temple. I mean, obviously, the, the very early Christians would have still gone to temple, you know, um, but soon enough, the Christian community was essentially meeting in houses, wasn't it? And it was very much a sort of family kind of focused sort of way of doing life together. Um, uh, there was a concept of household worship in Roman culture. But what was different about the way the Christians did worship as a family, as a household in that sense? Yeah, you know, I, I used to really underestimate um, why Christians met in houses. It, it, I used to kind of assume it was convenient, you know what I mean? It's just sort of like, hey, come on over to my house. But you have to understand the house was almost uh, a world unto itself. In the ancient world, the house was like a small business. It was like a family business because you often worked out of your house. You might run a business out of your house. The head of a household, the pater familias, they were kind of like the CEO of, of a small business, of a small family business. And I think there were a number of reasons why Christians met in households. I don't think it was accidental. I don't think it was just convenient. I think it was a testimony. It was a microcosm of an intimate family gathering with God. Was meant to broadcast. This is a whole different way of thinking about God. We could think about God as sovereign. We could think about God as king. We can think about God as warrior. But Christians primarily think about God as father. And that really matters because it shapes your relationship with God. Just think about the language of adoption in the New Testament. In the Roman world, um, adoption was a very different phenomenon. You didn't adopt people because they didn't have parents. You adopted people because me as, as a pater familias, as a ruler of a household, I couldn't have male children for one reason or another. And I need to adopt somebody who's going to take over the family business, uh, upstanding male. You would even adopt adults because you want someone to take over the family business. And you never adopted immigrants, foreigners, down their luck. You might bring them into your house, take care of them. You would never call it adoption. And what Jesus does, according to early Christians, is he is the greatest son to ever exist, the highest power, and he opens up membership into the family through his unique sonship. He makes everybody an equal, 
equal son. So for women, they would be daughter sons. And for men, they would be son sons because they enter into his sonship and they get equal privilege in the family. You have to think a Roman family had some biological family members, a whole bunch of slaves. We know some senators that had 500 or more slaves. Um, and then a whole bunch of kind of low wage employees that, does, that do gardening or menial tasks. So let's say maybe 40% of the people on your property are actually biological family members. And you have all these tiers of hierarchy and power within that. And yet when Christians gather, everybody's the same. This would have been one of the most uh, attractive, uh, but also most dangerous phenomena for the early Christians to meet in houses. Wasn't just what I'm saying is it wasn't just convenient. It said something about the way that Christians viewed God and the world around them. And as far as I understand, eating together was also significant. That that held a huge amount of kind of social meaning in that culture, who you ate with, who you shared your table with. And again, Christians very much took their cue in a way from Jesus on this one, didn't they? Uh, the way they their, their kind of table manners were, were quite significant about what they believed about the people around them. Yeah, meals were crucially important. You know, eating was a very intimate thing. It was a, a social cue. You were really careful who you ate with. Um, and when it came to parties and things, you know, what you did. And, you know, the, the, one of my favorite stories in the ancient world is actually a, a kind of comedian named Juvenal from the Roman world. I like to call him the Trevor Noah, if you guys know who Trevor Noah is. This is he was a Trevor Noah of the ancient world where he would he did a lot of political satire. And so he talks about someone going to a, a Romanized party and how shameful it was because if you're kind of a newbie in town, the goal of the party is actually to treat you like scum to reinforce the, the host's power. So there's kind of a hierarchy even at a dinner party of where you sit, who gets the best seats, who gets the best food, who gets warm food, right? Who 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 has the servers actually talk to them with respect? Who gets to sit close to the musicians? So think about that. I, I kind of liken it to flying today where, you know, you have first class and you have who gets on the plane first and all of that. And And the Christians didn't seem to have that. Now, there could have been what we call bad churches, where they utilize Romanized ways of thinking. But take the book of James, where James is talking about a Christian gathering. And he says, don't give the best seats to the people that you think are wealthy. Don't give the worst seats. He said, let's, let's flip it. Let's flip it and say, say to the person lower on the scale, come sit up front, right? They were, they were, they were changing things. Or like you're talking about with Jesus, when, you know, the quote unquote sinful woman comes to Jesus and he's having this, one of these meals, that's a show of, of, of power. Jesus says, when I walked in, nobody washed my feet. Nobody gave me oil for my face. Like nobody, nobody took care of me. And then this woman is coming or Jesus' parable, the great banquet. He says, I put out these invitations. I was ready to throw the traditional party and you guys snubbed me. You guys wouldn't come up. So he says, tell all the servants, gather the food. We're taking it to the streets. Um, that, that was radical. That was something that Romans would find very problematic. 
Did you know this podcast is also a book? The Surprising Rebirth of Belief in God, Why New Atheism Grew Old and Secular Thinkers Are Considering Christianity Again is available now. Historian Tom Holland says Justin has had a ringside seat watching the great debates on religion and reports on them with learning, subtlety and grace. Now, don't tell anyone, but you'll actually get the first chapter free in your email inbox if you subscribe to my newsletter. Or, if you want to just go ahead and order, signed editions are available from my website. Or, even better, you'll get both my books personally signed when you become a gold supporter of this podcast. So for the newsletter, the book, or to support, check the links in the show notes or visit justinbriley.com. So, back to Louise Perry and the main theme of today's episode, how the Christian revolution led to the first sexual revolution. Perry, who's a journalist and female rights campaigner, may seem a surprising advocate for the historic value of Christian sexual morality. In 2021, she published an unexpected bestseller, The Case Against the Sexual Revolution, a spirited critique of the porn-saturated, hypersexualized hookup culture of the modern world. But Perry didn't write the book from a Christian perspective. Her arguments for why the sexual revolution has been bad for women are all made from a purely socio-evolutionary perspective. Yet, almost to her own surprise, she found that what she was arguing for looked a lot like the Christian conception of monogamous marriage. I sat down alongside Belle Tyndall to speak to Louise Perry on the Reenchanting podcast. I began by asking Perry about how her views about sex had begun to change. The, the stuff that I had learned in seminars didn't map onto reality. Um, what kind of stuff? So one example is that um, academic feminism has almost nothing to say about motherhood and almost nothing to say about actually biology even. You know, that's what I was taught at university had so much to do with uh, gender performance and appearance and representation and all the superficialities of gender, which, you know, if you understand them in those ways, then you can understand them to be easily dissolved through cultural reform. Whereas actually that's not how people live their lives, that the differences actually between the sexes are profound on a physical level in particular. I just, I remember having to sit down with, with um, young women um, who I was working with and go through some of the crazy forms that we had, you know, asking them whether they were like polysexual and that sort of thing. And obviously these girls had no idea what I was talking about, like this ridiculous jargon that had been invented by the academy. I was just so embarrassed to have to repeat it. So, yeah, so I mean, I was already kind of sceptical of a lot of um, academic feminism, but that was really the nail in the coffin. I mean, the book, in a sense, came out of your experience of having been schooled in that sort of academic feminism, as you call it, and then the experience of seeing the real life situations in front of you in the Rape Crisis Centre. And the book comes, for those who haven't read it, to, you could argue, surprisingly Christian conclusions. You weren't writing it from a position of faith. Were you kind of surprised at where you eventually landed as you sort of worked those arguments through? I sort of convinced myself during the writing of the book actually because I because I started off yes with more radical feminist ideas and on many points I do still agree with radical feminism on issues like prostitution and pornography and and so on where I diverge from a lot of radical feminists is for instance on the marriage issue in having more um, respect for some of the traditional institutions in terms of their capacity to protect women's interests and children's interests I think that what we've seen post-sexual revolution 
um, which obviously coincides perfectly with the process of dechristianization, which is the same great historical event, really, of the last century. It has been a tearing down of those institutions and norms and an attempt to sort of reconstruct society on a new image. And I think that that has proved so far to mostly have been a failure and has actually left mostly the most vulnerable people worse off, including women and children. I mean, I think that the real the real losers from the sexual revolution in particular are poor women. Why so? What, what are the specifics that you would point to? Because there are some ways in which women are inherently more vulnerable than men in all times and places. You know, we're smaller physically than men. We're more vulnerable to violence. We get pregnant, um, which has all, you know, is, is a joy and a wonder, but also brings with it all sorts of pain and vulnerability. And poor women are particularly vulnerable because of, you know, someone like the sex industry it has always been the terrible threat hanging above poor women's heads. And what we've seen post-sexual revolution has not actually been any effort to protect women from that fate. It has instead been a repackaging of it to say that, you know, sex workers work, sex workers empowering, all that kind of liberal gloss over what is actually an ancient form of exploitation and oppression. I don't think that this social transformation has done a good job of actually delivering fairness and equality and all of the things that many of its proponents hope for it. I think that it has actually, the phrase I use in the book is um, freedom for the pike is death for the minnow. If you just insert greater freedom into a, into a system, you know, if you push the freedom lever, some people will benefit from that. The people who benefit from that are usually actually going to people be the people who were already in the strongest position to begin with, who were already in a position to take advantage of these new these new opportunities that freedom brings with it. And that will sometimes mean exploiting weaker people. Taking from Weber's idea of disenchantment of the natural world that, that proceeds from the Enlightenment, um, the same sort of process happens as part of the sexual revolution, where previously um, sex and all the things associated with it, marriage and so on, um, was enchanted, had a had a not just a special status, but had a sacred status. And then you have that falling away over the course of the second half of the twentieth century until we have this new idea of sex or, or, you know, the kind of progressive mainstream has a view of sex that it actually doesn't really mean anything, that you can buy it, you can sell it. It's not much different from sort of making someone a cup of a cup of coffee or playing tennis with someone or whatever. It's just a kind of neutral social act which you can imbue with meaning if you want to, but you don't have to. And actually the idea that it does have any kind of um, specialness or, God forbid, sacredness is anathema to this worldview. The problem with sexual disenchantment is that people don't actually behave as if sexual disenchantment is true because people actually don't feel sexual disenchantment to be true. That's probably also true for dis disenchantment in the natural world. You know, we, we have a deep intuitive feeling that actually sex is special for some reason. And may, it may be as, as basic as, you know, that that has evolved in us for some reason, that there's, a, there are, a, there's something adaptive about us believing that sex is, is special and different from other social interactions. Um, regardless, that's how human beings feel about it. And if you go around trying to pretend otherwise, you will generally make yourself miserable and make other people miserable, particularly for women who are trying to have... Um, enjoy casual sex and view hookup culture as just a sort of new leisure activity that's suddenly been destigmatized and it's been made available to women. It's a very dominant view 
among feminists in the sort of no, particularly 1990s onwards. There are some women for whom I think they really can enjoy casual sex like that. Who can really have sex like a man. So that's the expression used in Sex and the City. But actually the vast majority of women don't really feel like that. And what they will normally end up experiencing is deep instinctive feelings of discomfort and distress, which are very difficult to articulate. Because if you believe in sexual disenchantment and if you're trying to pretend that actually sex doesn't mean anything, how can you how can you express this? I mean, the only way, the only terminology you really have available to you is the terminology of consent. But consent is a very simple binary. It's just a legalistic idea, really. And it's quite possible to consent to something in legal terms, but to not enjoy it or to be made unhappy long-term by it or to be left with kind of vague feelings of distress, which might be quite hard to articulate. And that is what an enormous number of young women experience in hookup culture, which is the prevailing sexual culture among young people in the 21st century. It's always just struck me as a really bizarre kind of um, basis on which to base any kind of feminist project to say, well, men have always behaved like um, lotharios and, you know, a narcissist and whatever. Women should get a bite of the pie, <laughs> rather than saying actually maybe if men behaves a bit more like women, that would be a that would be a better a culture. But seeing masculine ways of doing things, including sexuality, as being aspirational, is very very deep within modern feminism, and I would I'd say deep within the culture that there is a general feeling that men and masculinity are just a bit more high status, and I think that the trap some strains of feminism have fallen into is to, is to accept that, accept that premise and say, well, in that case, what we want is for women to be more like men. And the problem is that women can't be men for a whole bunch of reasons. And actually women trying to be men normally just makes women more unhappy. If that's not a valid solution, what would you put on the table instead? Trying to reassert the value of women and a femininity so for instance you know reasserting the value of motherhood rather than simply saying that um women should be permitted to avoid motherhood at all costs which is basically what most second wave feminism has said to this point i am so passionate about women feeling like um christianity does not need to be in any way oppressive or strip them of empowerment or anything like that. To me, that goes against everything that um, the G the Jesus movement was about. It was an absolute revolution for women. It was about um, basically telling men to behave better, expecting more of them because there's you know the dignity of every human being, there's value placed upon women. So it's about not using people as possessions, not exploiting people not um, using and abusing people, all of that. And that's kind of similar-ish to what you're saying. Has that majorly surprised you that you come in alignment in certain ways? I'm not saying in every way with that, because that's the, one of the most attractive things about Christianity to me is um, how empowering it is for me as a woman. The process of dechristianization that starts in the 1960s, where, I mean, doesn't start, it accelerates in the 1960s, it starts earlier than that. I mean, um, even in the 19th century, you've got a falling away of Christian belief, right? And this is what Matthew Arnold was writing about in Dover Beach. But in the 1960s, you have that sharp acceleration. And I think it's Tom Holland who's described this as being something like a second reformation. Like that's how big a, an historical event it is. 
and I am extremely um, nervous <laughs> about what full dechristianization means and I don't think enough people think about what it actually means because I think so many um, secular progressives don't realise quite how deeply Christian their thinking is and they don't realise quite how quite how unique actually the set of ideas inherited to Christianity are in terms of say you know the radical sort of spiritual equality of men and women and of rich and poor and and the fact that um vulnerable people shouldn't be exploited they should be protected you know these kind of really fundamental ideas what we call human rights in a silly kind of you know they're not human rights they're they're they are um a culturally unique concept theological premises yeah you know we've never had a society that didn't have religion in some in some way I think the idea that you can just lose it is birds. Um, the question, I think, is just is just pick your poison, really. I think that what we're seeing now, as Christianity recedes, is not a transition to you know the rationalist utopia imagined by um, New Atheism. It's actually something much more pagan. I think that in many ways, what we're returning to is something that obviously, you know, many differences, we're talking about thousands of year gap here, but something that actually looks a lot more like Roman religion with potentially some of the moral ideas that come with that. I should say, I mean, I call myself Christian agnostic. Anyone who's raised in this culture obviously is deep, deeply, has Christianity deep in their bones. And so I'm sure to some extent that was sort of in the background for me. I mean, just the idea that um, women's vulnerability is not something to be despised, but is something to be protected. That is basically a, a fundamentally Christian idea. It's not something that, you know, the Romans thought, for instance. Yeah. And the idea that, say, a slave woman's sexual violation is 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 abhorrent, again, that is, that is an idea that comes with Christianity and was absolutely not by any means universally recognised in the ancient world or indeed in, you know, very many other cultures. And that, yeah, I think it's fundamental to, to, to feminism. I mean, I I actually have a long essay about this coming up recently, which I think I'll get in a lot of trouble for, but I really do think that um, feminism comes out of Christianity. Feminism is completely reliant on Christian moral principles. And I think that feminists who set themselves up in opposition to Christianity, you know, the Handmaid's Tale kind of representation of this sort of... I mean, people forget that The Handmaid's Tale was really written about the Iranian Revolution, but the, the imagery from the TV show and so on is all about Puritanism and, and, and sort of setting up Christianity as the bogeyman. I think that view completely misses the, 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 the legacy of Christianity that is, in, that is still very evident within feminism. And I think that actually feminists who set themselves up in opposition to Christianity, this is particularly true in America, where obviously Christian right is much more sort of fearsome force are soaring off the branch on which they sit. Louise Perry has come to realise that there have in fact been two sexual revolutions. The revolution of the 21st century, in which technology such as the pill broke the link between sex and childbirth, and changing social mores that did away with the requirement for monogamy or marriage. For all its advantages in breaking the stigma and shame around women's sexuality, Perry says that the consequent enormous rise of the porn industry, the commodification and depersonalized nature of sex, and the subsequent rise of the surrogacy industry has also come at a huge cost for women, men, and children. 
Alongside other feminists such as Mary Harrington, she's increasingly been arguing that we need a return to the first sexual revolution, when Christians changed the Greco-Roman culture, insisting that sex was not just about recreation or the powerful exploiting the weak, but was something sacred that required consent, love and faithfulness, and was aimed at raising children within a family unit. As she explains in this conversation with Glenn Scrivener, monogamous marriage isn't perfect, but it may be the best thing we've come up with to ensure that sexuality is expressed in ways that ensure the flourishing of society. Anthropologists call it the puzzle of monogamous marriage. Hmm. Why is it that a system that doesn't suit the interests of elite men, because as you say, the elite men, their instinct is to have lots of wives, and to have sexual access to slaves and, you know, to live to live the kind of ancient fantasy. Um, why would a system that doesn't suit the interests of those men become as dominant as it has? Because monogamous marriage has become the dominant system, you know, through much of the world up until recently here. And the answer seems to be because monogamous marriage is a really good system, not necessarily for the elite men, but it's a really good system for the whole of society. Mm. You end up with lower crime levels for instance, because you don't have this well of frustrated men who don't have partners. Men are, are, are tamed by marriage and by children mm. in the sense that it gives them incentives to behave pro-socially and actually tames men even at the biological level. Mm. We know that testosterone levels drop when men are... It's the testosterone suppression system, as Joseph Henrik calls it, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. when men are involved in care for their, own, for their children, their testosterone levels drop. Mm. Um, they commit less crime. They, 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 they drink less, you know, all sorts of ways in which... This is obviously not to say that there aren't, there aren't counterexamples. Of course, there are, but on an average level, you can see their taming effect across all sorts of dimensions. And monogamous marriage also makes societies more productive on an economic level because elite men, instead of investing in wives... They invest in new businesses, you know. They're like they're, it turns out that this thousand, two thousand year old tool is actually really, really effective. <laughs> actually, in, in ways that we maybe didn't expect, um, and is effective. Actually, it lowers it, it lowers um, domestic violence rates mm. and mm. child and child abuse rates because households which have lots of co-wives and their children in them tend to be generate a lot of conflict it yeah. actually meets all sorts of feminist purposes that we wouldn't, couldn't necessarily foreseen except that we experimented with the alternatives and found them not to be very good <laughs> did you come across the there was a vice article maybe a few months ago and it was uh, it was all about this this new sexuality you can try it's called radical monogamy and then you read the article it's just monogamy people so uptight about i mean money is power sex is power therefore getting money for sex is simply an exchange of power men give women receive it's biological destiny i'm just gonna you know what? i'm gonna write the whole thing off as a bad date with a cash bonus Carrie Bradshaw and her set of sexually liberated female friends in Manhattan dominated many TV screens in the late 90s and early 2000s. Sex and the City epitomised the way in which many viewed the sexual revolution, enabling independent women to take control of their sex lives and cast off the shackles of prurient society's concerns about monogamy and chastity 
and have a lot of fun in the process. As Kim Cattrall's character Samantha says in her opening scene... Look, look, if you're a successful saleswoman in this city, you have two choices. You can bang your head against the wall and try and find a relationship, or you can say screw it and just go out and have sex like a man. Kim Cattrall's character, who notches up sexual conquests every week, may have believed she had achieved gender equality by having sex like a man, but some 20 years later, the concept of having sex like a man is being interrogated by thinkers like Louise Perry, who say it's simply not in women's or society's interests to do so. As the Harvey Weinstein scandal revealed, having sex like a man often results in abuse and harassment. That's why many thinkers, both Christian and secular, are reminding us of the sexual revolution of the first century and reassessing the supposedly fuddy-duddy Christian morality it inspired. Many are helping us to understand just how consequential the first sexual revolution really was in insisting that rather than women having sex like men, that men should have sex more like women. The early Christianity forbade sexual relations outside of marriage. This is historian Larry Hurtado, who passed away in 2019, speaking in this archive Lanier lecture about the ways in which Christianity remoulded the ancient world of sex. Of course, adultery, sex with a married woman, was prohibited by everybody, was against the law, frowned upon in the wider culture. But in addition, Christian teaching condemned practices commonly accepted in the Roman world, including particularly sex with prostitutes or courtesans, and those who were typically slaves often provided for sexual pleasures at banquets for males. In doing so, early Christianity essentially laid upon male adherents the same sort of standards of sexual behavior widely expected in the, in the common culture of virtuous wives. The Christian distinctive was to erase the double standard requiring males to practice the same chastity as everybody expected proper women to married women to practice. For early Christianity, what was good for the goose was good for the gander also. Secular thinkers such as political philosopher Larry Seidentop, author of Inventing the Individual, have pointed out how Christianity challenged the traditional hierarchical views prevalent in Roman society by promoting the notion of equal dignity among individuals, including within the institution of marriage. This notion fundamentally altered the understanding of marriage from a transactional or societal arrangement to a union based on mutual love, respect, and equality between partners. Likewise, in his book, The Weirdest People in the World, evolutionary biologist Joseph Heinrich argues that the Christian marriage and family program of the church was largely responsible for the development of the uniquely weird nature of Europe. Weird being an acronym, Western, educated, industrialized, rich, and democratic. Whether the West can continue to flourish in the absence of the kind of family relationships forged by the first Christian revolution remains to be seen. But today, even in a culture that has largely forgotten much of the Christian emphasis on chastity and monogamy that came to rule the West, the concept of consent in sexual relationships, based on the equal worth and dignity of every individual, is still generally regarded as sacrosanct. Yet many modern people are unfamiliar with the deeply Christian roots of this belief and how very strange it is compared to our forebears. 
This is Nijay Gupta again, author of Strange Religion, telling me just how differently the Romans viewed sex and the way it preferenced men above all. Uh, Greeks loved pleasurable things, <laughs> right? Whether that's music, theater, philosophy, sex, and other things. Uh, at Romans were a little more civilized in that sense that they they wanted some control over this. But, you know, what was really interesting about a marital relationship is a Roman way of thinking was um, treat your wife with the utmost respect, uh, have sex for the purpose of having children. But Romans would say men have needs. And so you go to a party, right? You, 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 you force yourself upon a slave or they would have prostitutes. Many of them were slaves or they would have entertainers. Some of them were slaves and you could gratify yourself um, as often as you want with basically whoever you want, as long as they were in inferior to you, right? You could force yourself upon an inferior. And so I would say two things came out of the Greco-Roman world. One is uh, a kind of free pursuit of pleasure because you know men have power and needs. But a second is Sex was often a show of power. It was a reinforcement of someone in power. I don't want to get too graphic here, but it was it was the it was the it was in the best interest of a man to play the role of the penetrator and uh, over and against someone that was penetrated, even whether whether the penetrated person was male or female, sometimes really didn't matter. The the the, the, the goal was I reinforced my power by by being the one in power. Speaking on the Post-Christianity podcast, historian Kyle Harper, author of From Shame to Sin, The Christian Transformation of Sexual Morality in Late Antiquity, describes how double standards in sexual relationships were completely taken for granted in the Greco-Roman world. Yeah, the idea of a double standard doesn't even begin to describe the way the Roman world works because there's nothing at all hypocritical about the double standard. And it's not even a double standard. It's a quadruple standard, at least. It depends if you're male, female, if you're free or slave, if you're a person of honor and status in society, if you're a person who's uh, of low social status or deprived of social honor. There's, like you say, there's not even hypocrisy. There's just simply different rules depending on where you stand in the social order. And Christianity, of course, doesn't wipe that away in, in sort of one swoop, um, but it radically um, uh, changes the the expectation that different people would follow different rules. It uh, it, it completely changes the underlying logic in ways that make us make it difficult for us to, to really get back into the, um, the culture of pre-Christian times. The transformation of sexual morality is one of the, the biggest effects, one of the domains where the, the shift from a pre-Christian to a Christian culture is the, the most radical. The, the values of consent and dignity and the way those um, become fundamental ingredients in liberalism um, seems to me uh, deeply Christian. Christians had uh, a lot of their views actually 
taken from their Jewish heritage, of of respect for others, and of holiness and decorum. Nijay Gupta. Now you have to think, humans are going to behave like their gods, right? So, so if your gods like to sleep around, like Jupiter likes to sleep around, right? Uh, or Hades, or, or, or Aphrodite, right? You know, if your gods like to sleep around and they don't respect marriage and they don't respect people's boundaries, then that's the way humans are going to behave. And the Jews had this God who's not married, right? Who cares about holiness. The Jews had priests who were uh, sacred priests to the Lord, right? Their inheritance comes from the Lord. They're not married. And so this idea of sexual purity was very, very important to Jews, right? Christians had that. They also had Jesus who wasn't married, who didn't have sex. Certainly, the sexual ethics of the Jewish people stood in contrast to the prevailing pagan view of sex. But it was the early Christian church and the way its influence rapidly spread to Gentiles throughout the Mediterranean and eventually universalized its ethic to much of the world that would eventually rewire the way modern Western people think about sexual relationships. This is Tom Holland describing just how countercultural the demands of Christianity were on its new adherents. This is the world that Paul is writing to. These are the, the these are the people who he is writing to in his letters, and essentially he is saying, say to a, a Roman householder who has decided to um, accept Christ, uh, well, you can't go around <laughs> raping the scullery mate anymore, you know, because that's not acceptable. And if you have to have sex, then you have to model yourself on Christ and Christ's relationship to the church, which means by extension that you have to be monogamous and that that monogamous relationship has to be lifelong because that is the model of Christ's relationship to the church. You know, Christ doesn't go around divorcing the church so he can get, or, you know, betraying the church by running off with someone else. That's unconscionable. And so that imposes on people who become Christian an unbelievably strict understanding of marriage. I mean, it's strict both by the standards of Romans, uh, who, who were divorcing, you know, always divorcing left, right and centre, uh, and on, on, on Jews as well. You know, they can have various wives. This idea that, that, that marriage should be um, monogamous, it should be uh, lifelong, and that um, there should be no scope for it for the kind of uh, family-based rape that, that had been part of Roman households. This takes a, a long time for Christ, Christian authorities, Christian leaders to impose on society for understandable reasons, because revolutions in sexual assumptions are very, very hard to push through. Um, and they're running counter to things that are pretty fundamental and basic to, 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 to the way that men in particular tend to understand sexuality. The way that the church going into the Middle Ages tries to patrol this is to break the power of the, the patriarch, the clan leader, to to do what he wants to with his children. So to marry off, you know, a daughter to a cousin or whatever. Um, and, and the reason for doing this is that if Christ Christ has chosen to marry his church, then a man has to have, you know, he has free will when it comes to choosing who he wants to marry. And likewise for the woman, the church chooses Christ. A woman has to be free to choose a man. 
And so over the course of the Middle Ages, simultaneously, what the church is doing is imposing an understanding of of what is permissible in law for people to marry. So that's why in English we have in-laws, your father-in-law, your mother-in-law. They're in law because they have been licensed to be permissible by the standards of the church. Um, You know, it's not incestuous. Church councils are obsessed with defining incest. At some points, it's kind of seven degrees of separation. So really, really, you know very 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 stern and this breaks up the power of the clan it 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 but more than that it kind of brings in the notion of romantic love as something that should be the basis for a relationship it wasn't only sexual relationships between men and women that early christianity changed as larry hurtado explains as well early christianity rejected another widespread practice pederasty sex with small children And by the way, we have indications of sex with children as young as two and three years of age. This practice too is common, even cultivated, especially amongst the cultured classes. Most often this abuse involved, of course, slave children, both male and female. The early Christian condemnation of the practice, by the way, is exhibited distinctively in what appears to be the distinctive Christian terms used to designate it. Instead of the Greek words pederastia, which means child love or boy love, or pederastao, to love or have sex with boys or children, and the, the person who does it as a pederastes, a boy lover or child lover, instead of these terms, early Christians invented the term pedothoreo, uh, pedothoreo which means to abuse or corrupt children, and pedophthoros, Instead of pederastes, they referred to the person who did this as a pedophthoros, translated roughly, one who sexually abuses children. Nijay Gupta says that it wasn't just about promoting monogamy, chastity, and the recognition that some forms of sex were exploitative and abusive. Within Christianity, the concept of virtuous self-control and even celibacy became a viable option, something that was seen as verging on dangerous to the Roman mindset. Here's a few things that come out of Christianity. One is, um, just because you have a feeling doesn't mean you have to act on it. <laughs> I mean, that, that was kind of a, a 101. Just, you know, it, it self-controls what, what the ancients would call self-mastery. Just because you have. And Roman, and sometimes philosophers, Roman philosophers talked about this, of self-mastery is control over your over your body. Uh, but I think a big part of it is um, we don't need to reassert our power over others because we have security in Christ. Um, and then you add to that Paul's call to singleness and celibacy. Now, Romans would have really thought this was dangerous because Rome was passionate about expansion. They wanted to expand their world. You expand by by a big army and you get a big army by more people and you get more people by big families. And here the Christians were saying, at least in first Corinthians, um, the Christian mission is so important. We need people with 100% dedication that if you choose my lifestyle of celibacy and singleness, you're going to be doing right by the Lord. Now, by the time you get to first Timothy, which is, you know, a few decades later, Paul saying actually marriage is good. Don't, because they didn't want people to become ascetics in the sense that they were denying earthly things. But ultimately what they were saying about sex is um, 
self-control is really important. We should never use sex as a weapon. And um, there should be harmony. First Corinthians, he says, you need to have consent. Your bodies belong to one another. Justin, this is probably one of the craziest things written in the New Testament. Paul says, wives, your bodies belong to your husbands. Okay, that's a very Roman idea. He also says, husbands, your bodies belong to your wives. Wait a second. No, no, no. Romans would say off limits. No way. Pliny would be rolling around at his grave if he knew what Paul said to the Corinthians. Because Pliny says the even appearance of equality will topple the whole kingdom, the whole empire. And for Paul to say, your bodies belong to one another, there should be consent. Think about our conversation about consent. Paul's saying there should be consent in sex. That's the most anti-Roman thing I've ever heard. And this was radical. If there is any writing from the Apostle Paul perhaps yet more radical than his commands about consent within marriage, it's the statement he makes in one of his earliest letters. Galatians chapter 3 verses 28 and 29. For now there is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. This countercultural statement about the equality of all people in the eyes of God, whatever their gender, social status or ethnicity, is specifically linked to their adoption into God's family through Christ. That radical statement laid the foundation for every declaration and bill of rights in the modern world that insists on the essential equality and dignity of all people. Today, such statements are stripped of their religious underpinnings, yet their claims are no less theological in nature at source. As Nijay Gupta mentions, in terms of sexual relationships, the right of consent that came from Christian ethics continues to be central to modern understandings of sex. But is the concept of consent alone enough to undergird our sex lives when divorced from the other Christian commitments to monogamy, faithfulness and self-control? G.K. Chesterton wrote that the modern world is full of the old Christian virtues gone mad. The virtues have gone mad because they've been isolated from each other and are wandering alone. We live in a post-Christian culture that still clings strongly to some of the virtues that the Christian revolution inspired. But as we've witnessed in earlier episodes, unmoored from the larger worldview that inspired them, they can easily become oppressive too. Compassion by compulsion, diversity by diktat. Even Paul's radical statement of equality of every individual in Galatians, rooted in the unity that the Christian family brings, in a post-Christian culture, has actually led to the flourishing of individualism rather than a communal vision of the good. Likewise, in this case, sexual consent, good as it is, isn't enough by itself to nurture flourishing people and a flourishing culture. As the Harvey Weinstein scandal reminded us, consent itself is a slippery concept in a world of power and privilege. It seems to me there are two possible directions our post-Christian culture could go. If we continue on our current trajectory, in which a materialist view of reality sees the human body as a 
biological machine that can be repurposed for pleasure or sexual and gender expression at will, then in my view, we are likely to return to a pre-Christian view of sex, in which the most powerful and wealthy assert their supremacy. Harvey Weinstein may have been brought down, but alarmingly large parts of our culture are being swayed towards the Andrew Tate school of post-Christian masculinity. The man with the buffest body and the biggest harem is the person who wins at life. But I believe more and more of us are waking up to an alternative possibility. Despite its promises 60 years since it began, the contemporary sexual revolution has left in its wake a generation of porn-addicted young people, broken hearts, and an actual decline in the number of people enjoying fulfilling sexual relationships. I see a generation of people realizing that meaningless sex leads to meaningless lives. Indeed, many people are beginning to wonder whether our bodies and the way we use them may have a God-given meaning that sex can be wielded as a weapon of power or treated as a gift that enables flourishing relationships, families and communities. In her interactions, Louise Perry has been surprised by the number of women who, after reading her book, have said they were relieved to be told they don't have to settle for the status quo and are feeling more empowered to reclaim the dignity and sacredness of sex. Perhaps the failure of the 20th and 21st century sexual revolution will be part of the surprising rebirth of belief in God. But what about the author herself? Has her research led her beyond Christian ethics as a useful socio-evolutionary tool to a belief in the Christian God who inspired it? I was recently invited to join Louise on her own Maiden Mother Matriarch podcast, and this is where our conversation went. I find Christianity very, very compelling intellectually and emotionally, but I find the metaphysics difficult. Mm. And I think it's because we've sort of had this fire break. I think that if I had been born some centuries ago, I would have just believed mm -hmm. completely. I would have been raised believing and I would have just believed and it would never have really been. I don't, I don't think I'm sort of a natural atheist. I think I would have um, embraced the, the faith that I swam in at the time. But given that I wasn't, it's now quite hard to really, you know, to sign up for all of it. Yeah. You know, not just the resurrection, but <laughs> heaven and, 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 you know, like there, there are so many supernatural claims within Christianity, mm. um, which, uh, I just, my, 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 uh, my disenchanted brain can't quite manage, but I do see many examples, including Kingsall and others of people who, um, who have managed to jump that gulf mm. and actually, you know, I, I have friends who've had charismatic experiences in adulthood or who have just, um, I think Jordan Peterson is in this category, although I don't know in detail, just kind of gone to church, kept going to church and eventually you fake it till you make it. That's a... Yeah. I appreciate you being so, so honest about that, Louise. I mean, if I may play quasi sort of spiritual advisor to you, though I, I hesitate to, Please. to to do that. I, I totally get what you're saying. I, I think it's really difficult, I think, if you've been raised in a very kind of rational environment to sort of buy into the the sort of the metaphysics, as you say, of the whole thing. At the same time, without realizing we've almost been indoctrinated into a kind of materialist understanding of reality at the same time. The more that I look even at the 
even on a kind of purely objectively scientific level at our universe, there's all kinds of aspects of it that seem to be, to me, crying out for an explanation beyond itself. I don't think the concept of God, per se, is at all one that you have to make a huge intellectual leap for. I, I think that mm. the more I look at the nature of the universe, the the nature of ourselves as, as sort of moral creatures, I don't think the God conclusion is necessarily one that, that is that hard to reach. I think it's the sort of the God in with with skin on Jesus that that is probably the next hardest gulf to, to cross. And I get that. But then that's one of those areas where I would say my my first inclination would just be to get someone to go and read the gospels and, and just see what happens because I think it's it you always have to sort of put yourself in to that story for for the character of Jesus to suddenly start to potentially make sense. And obviously on the Christian worldview, I'm, you know, it is Jesus who basically shows us what God is like. God stops being an abstract proposition and becomes very real in that way. I just find it incredibly interesting that when you do a bit of history, as sort of Tom Holland has done, you know, you just see firstly, gosh, this this tiny little sect had this outsized influence on the whole of the world. And at the very center of this influence was this bizarre historical claim that the Jewish Messiah had been crucified and had then risen again. And against all of their theological expectations, his followers went around telling people and were willing to be martyred and crucified themselves on the back of it. And for me, I guess I, I kind of tentatively put these blocks together and say, well, look, I think I can build a kind of intellectual case for kind of, that, that at least gets me so far towards those metaphysical claims. But there is a kind of point at which you're then going to have to say, okay, I'm either in or out on this. And I've I, I've maybe constructed a bridge close enough for it not to feel like I'm just leaving my brains at the door. But I, I could take a step here, a Kierkegaardian, you know, leap of faith and see what happens. And in my experience, when, when people have done that, they've, they've been surprised to find, yeah, that some suddenly the pieces do all slot together in a way I hadn't quite expected or whatever. I just think that that, that you, you're never in the end going to get away from that that sort of it, it's about kind of transferring from one worldview to another quite literally and the way the bible puts that is being transferred from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light so it's it's like you are putting down your materialist goggles perspective on the world and picking up this new way of looking at reality and the world and hopefully you don't in the process become a complete weirdo though some people probably do start to look and sound a bit weird to their friends but it's it is a kind of it is a paradigm shift and um that that's the the only advice i can offer to you that there's there is a good kind of foundation there that, that this is based on but in the end yeah it's kind of like you're having to step from one thing into another i am um, i had coffee with a christian friend recently who sp who who took like 10 years or something to um gradually she didn't have a charismatic moment right she's just gradually gradually transitioned to being someone who believed and she said that you know look the good thing about christianity and indeed many other faiths right but but the good thing about christianity is that it is uh, comprehensive and internally coherent and it's actually not like there's really an alternative it's not like the scientism of dawkins is comprehensive and eternally coherent it doesn't actually offer a real time it doesn't tell us why we're here or any of that it doesn't claim to um 
So it's kind of like either you just dive in face first and just say, okay, I'll just accept it and stop worrying about it so much. As the poster advises us to, so funny enough, she, her <laughs> advice was basically to, just, her advice was basically, why don't you just believe in God and stop worrying about it? And enjoy your life. <laughs> and enjoy your life, exactly. <laughs> exactly. It strikes me that Louise Perry finds herself in the same place as so many secular intellectuals I'm meeting who are suddenly becoming aware of where their journey has taken them. The promises of secular modernity have fallen away behind them. They can't go back. But what can they go forward into? Christianity is useful, but is it true? What is needed to take that leap of faith? In our modern culture, what would it take to restore a belief not only in the goodness of sex, but in a good God who created it? You've been listening to the surprising rebirth of belief in God, telling the story of how new atheism grew old and secular thinkers are considering Christianity again. This podcast series is also a book. You can read the first chapter for free when you join my newsletter at justinbriley.com, where you can also order the book or get a signed copy. Support via Patreon or tax-deductible giving from the USA gets you early access to new episodes of the podcast, plus bonus content. Find out more and about other ways to support this show at justinbriley.com. Material from The Big Conversation was used by permission of Premier. Visit premierunbelievable.com for full shows. Coming up next time. And we went to a church that had been systematically desecrated. There, there was a, a, a picture that I picked up that showed the Annunciation. was kind of open to the idea of there being angels at that point. And it was kind of a, a kind of sweet sense of intoxication that perhaps everything was weird and strange. The Christian Revolution, how the cross changed the world. Today's episode was a production of Think Faith in partnership with Genexis. Editing assistance by Isaac Simmons. You can find links to the book and all our featured guests with the show notes. Please subscribe to this podcast, do rate and review us and share it on social media. It really helps others to discover this documentary series. Plus, you can get the next episode that you just heard a clip from two weeks early when you support at justinbriley.com. The link is with today's show. See you next time. Thanks for listening. Just before I let you go, I had this lovely review from Chrissy saying, so good. I've literally consumed this podcast in three days. I've sent it to all my friends from various backgrounds. I pray you guys continue the amazing work and keep those episodes coming. Leaving a review like Chrissy really helps others to discover the show. But if you'd really like to help me keep those episodes coming, why not consider supporting the show or buying the book that this podcast is based on? The links are with today's show or visit justinbriley.com. See you at the next episode.